Well, the British are notoriously uncomfortable discussing money, politics and religion. And here we are uh, thinking about all three of these things this morning. Nothing like that to cause arguments, are there? We're in the middle of election season. Chris has already spoken to us about uh, the politics. And now we're talking about money and religion together. And it may be we get to verse 1 of our passage this morning and think, two right, Paul, it's time to shut up. Look at verse 1. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. The service here is Paul's uh, travelling round, fundraising in all the churches he's planted to gather up funds to support uh, starving Christians in Jerusalem. And he says, there's no need for me to write to you about this anymore. And we go, phew, right, we can move on now. Stop talking about the money, Paul. Religious people talking about money is bound to make us feel uncomfortable, isn't it? And we've been thinking about it for the last two weeks. So it's about time to stop. But actually, Paul, Paul doesn't feel the same shame and reservation that I might feel if I was writing this book. And having talked about generosity two weeks ago and integrity in giving last week, he has one final thing he wants to say to us before he does move on in chapter 10. He wants us to see the root and foundation of our generosity In fact, Paul doesn't want to write about the fundraising at all because notice verse 2. I know your eagerness to help. He talks in verse 5 about the generous gift you had already promised. See, Paul isn't talking about the fundraising directly because they already get it. Paul has spoken to them face to face a year ago and they already get it. In fact, Paul has boasted about their readiness to the other churches, to the churches in Macedonia. And that's created The problem. Having boasted about their eagerness to the Macedonians, their readiness to help out, Paul is now sending Titus and the two unnamed brothers to make sure they actually are ready. Verse 3. Otherwise, Paul's boasting will turn out to be empty. Just empty words, and there would be embarrassment all round. Verse 4. We saw all these things a bit last week. In other words, there's a danger of one of two things happening. Paul will get there and the Corinthians will just say, not doing it. They'll fail to give and keep their promises. Or Paul will get there and force them to fulfil their promises. That is a gift grudgingly given, verse 5. And the problem is, in either case, what's at stake is the generosity of spirit that they showed when they made their promises in the first place. It's this quality of character generosity that Paul is returning to here but whereas in chapter 8 he was simply urging them to be generous uh, here in chapter 9 he lays out the motivations the foundations of our generosity and the fact that Paul labours the point for a whole chapter here should raise a question for us why might they and we be unwilling to be generous Last week, it was the fear that Paul was going to take the money and run. It was his integrity that was called into question, and so Paul has defended that. So if Paul's addressed the integrity question, the money will get where you sent it, what's left? Why wouldn't they give? And here's the truth. Giving generously is costly, isn't it? To give generously is to go to war with the idols in our own souls. After all, money is security. Money is the pathway to every other thing that we want. 
Money is our chance to upgrade the phone or the TV or the car. It's, it's the thing that keeps us on the technological cutting edge. Uh, Apple Watch, anyone? Money is that new pair of shoes. It's the holiday. It's the pleasurable experiences. To give generously is to miss out, isn't it? Which then begs the next question. What do I gain by giving? Or to be more blunt, what do I get out of it? When all of these things are on one side of the scales and I'm going to lose them, what's the gain? And do I really want what God offers on the gain side anyway? Yesterday we were in the park with, with some old friends and Harry had picked up some quartzy little stones and he was trying to sell us stones for a pound each. And, uh, and I pointed out to him that I don't want those stones. And I'm not prepared to spend a pound because I can go and pick up some for free just down on the path over there. And, and, and so he stopped trying to sell us the stones. Is that what it's like? God says, give me your money and I'll give you something that you don't really want anyway. I mean, it's all very well to say I get a nice fuzzy feeling when I help somebody who's less, uh, in less good situation than me. But if it costs me the new iPhone, do I really want that fuzzy feeling? What is going to motivate you and I to put our idols to death? And as soon as we put it like that, we realise there are, there are two questions here, aren't there? See, if you've got the cost on one side of the scales, on the other side, there's the upsides of giving. What are the things on this side of the scales? But secondly... Sort of the measure of our our Christian maturity is, do I care about the things on this side of the scales? How much do I value the things on this side of the scales? At the end of the day, cost, gain. Am I prepared to pay the cost to get what's on this side of the scales? And this passage is going to work on our hearts if we let it. Paul gives us two principles and then three outcomes Uh, First principle is here, verse 6, you get more than you give. Verse 6, Paul opens verse 6 with a picture. He imagines a farmer, quite hard for us living in the city to get this, but I think it's still understandable. Uh, Think of the farmer with a choice. Uh, the, The sowing season is coming and he goes to his grain barn and he finds he's got some grain. And he has to make a decision, do I use this grain to feed my family? Do I make bread with this? Or do I go out and sow it in the field? If I sow it in the field, there's a danger that the harvest will fail and I get nothing. But on the other hand, if if the harvest is good, I'm going to get 30 or 60 or 100 times what I've put in the ground. Do I stick or twist? Do I take what I've got already? Or do I I make a play for the future? Verse 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Paul says there's a natural law at work here. You can, you can examine this. You can go into the fields and watch this happening. If you put a little bit of grain in the ground, you are not going to get an abundant harvest. If you want to reap abundantly, you have to sow abundantly. That's how it works. It's simple mathematics. But here Paul is drawing a parallel between the farmer in the field and the Christian with his generosity. So the language of generosity here, sowing generously, reaping generously, is the same language as in verse 5. Your gift should be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Paul is making a parallel between the farmer in the field and the request to the saints in Corinth to give. 
And it seems that Paul is making a, a parallel between their spiritual situation and the farmer in the field. And so Paul seems to be saying, if you give generously, you will receive generously in kind. Grain in the ground, grain out of the ground, money into the, into the treasury, money out. Seems to be what he's saying. Sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel that I was slamming last week, doesn't it? So uh, is that what he's saying? Is he's got a slot machine, you put £10 in, you get 30, 60, 100 fold out. Is that how it works? Is Paul extolling a sort of prosperity gospel principle? And the answer is no and yes. Paul is not talking about putting money in and getting money out in a sort of transaction. Okay, it's not something as grubby as that. Absolutely not. And you'll never find anywhere in the New Testament where that is the principle. But there is a prosperity principle at work here. The seed analogy finds its conclusion in verse 10. Just take a look at verse 10 with me. The end of verse 10. God will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. The principle at work here seems to be this. Be generous... Because you'll get out of it an abundant harvest of righteousness. Think of your scales again. The cost. Whatever it costs me to give, abundant harvest of righteousness on this side. What's the question again? Do I want an abundant harvest of righteousness? Do I care about being righteous? Righteousness or shoes? But Paul thinks this should motivate us. So just think for a moment about Jesus. He's the definition of righteousness, isn't he? You see in Jesus a perfectly righteous life. So let's think about Jesus for a moment. Think of his compassion. Think of his gentleness with the weak and the sick and the children. Think of his wisdom in answering the the difficult probing questions. We've been looking at Jesus in Mark's Gospel this year in our small groups. Think of his fierceness in the temple where it's necessary. Righteous anger. Think of his beauty. Do you not find when you look at Jesus, you go, wow, there's a man. There's the love of my heart. There's the one that I long to be with. We see Jesus' righteousness and we love him for it, don't we? And don't we long for that same righteousness in our own lives? Imagine imagine a whole church. Imagine a church full of people with a harvest of righteousness. Are people all like Jesus? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't that be better than all the shoes and phones and cars in all the world, wouldn't it? Of course, it's one thing for Paul to say, so these things get harvest of righteousness. It's easy to see in the field, it's harder to see in the spiritual realm. So what is the guarantee that this principle of generous giving, reaping a harvest of abundant righteousness... What's the guarantee that's going to work? And that brings us to our second principle. The principle that stands behind that first principle... If you're taking notes, you'll see on the outline of the service sheet, there's an ample outline of where we're going. Uh, Please do take notes if it's helpful for you. Our second principle, God abundantly blesses the cheerful giver whom he loves. That's long. God abundantly blesses the cheerful giver whom he loves. That's verses 7 through to 11a. And that is at the heart of what Paul is saying. It's the heart of what I want to say for the next few minutes. Uh, Back in chapter uh, 9, verse 5, Paul contrasts a grudgingly given gift with a generous gift. And he comes back to that principle again in verse 7. Just take a look at the the same point. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not, Not a grudgingly given gift. So far, so similar. But look where he ends. 
Paul doesn't, see, Paul doesn't want the grudgingly given gift. He doesn't want them to be grudging givers. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver, a generous giver, a happy giver. Think of the Macedonians at the beginning of chapter 8, the joyful generosity. God loves a cheerful giver. Which implies that God doesn't love a grumpy giver. God doesn't love gifts grudgingly given. He doesn't love it when we we count the cost of giving and we sort of have to do it because we know we ought to, but we hate it. He doesn't love the spirit of despising him that comes with a grumpy gift. In that situation, we're better off not giving because God doesn't love it. And he doesn't love the heart that's in us in that situation. But notice what he does love. And I mean really love. The thing that delights his heart. The thing that puts a big, if I can be a reference for him, the big foolish grin on his face. At yesterday night, Mim and I were sitting eating our dinner and Tim came down the stairs from his bedroom. He was supposed to be sleeping, but he came down to tell us he'd finished reading his first book. Like a proper length book, not, a, not, not, not Mr. Men or something. And he's been reading this book for a while and he's excited because he's just finished his first book and he has a massive grin on his face. And you know, I had a massive grin on my face because getting boys to read books is hard work. Uh, and he's finally doing it and he loves it. And, and I love that he loves it and it warms my heart because I think it's a good thing for him. What is it that puts the big foolish grin on the face of God? Notice here, it is not the gift, but the giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, honestly, I'm not sure there's a better thing in all the world, a better reason to give ourselves to God or to give our money to his service. Because if you live, if you give cheerfully, joyfully to gospel causes, know this, God loves you for it. He is delighted in you for it. Now, of course, there's a sense in which God loves everything that he's made. We know that God loves his world. He sent his son to redeem the world. And there's a sense in which we know he particularly loves all Christians all of the time. When we were far off from him, he sent his son to die to redeem us so that we who were enemies and hated him could be brought into his family and made like Christ. There's a sense in which God loves us through Jesus all of the time. But there is another sense in which God can love us. One that is not experienced by all of us all of the time. There's a sense in which God loves us when we live like Christ. Those other types of love, they're God loving us despite ourselves. In spite of our sin, God loves us anyway. He loves us because there's nothing in us to love. But you know, as he changes us, this love... This love springs from a deep joy in God himself when he sees his people behave like his people. When God looks at us and sees Christ in us, being formed in us, it puts a great big soppy grin on his face. There's a lovely scene in the film Charity Fire. I don't know if you know the film. You should know the film. If you don't know the film, go and watch it. It's a great film. Uh, Eric Little, the Olympian and missionary, is explaining why he has to go to the Olympics. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose, for China. And he did go to China. He died as a missionary in China. He went to China because that's what God made him for. But he says this too. He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God made him for a purpose. He made him quick for a reason. He glorified God by winning the Olympic 400 metre race. 
Well, as Christians, we are made to be like Christ. That is what we were remade for. And he loves it when we're generous. When we give ourselves to others. Because in that moment, we're behaving like Christ, the one he loves most of all. Who emptied himself of all glory, became a man, became a slave, died as a sacrifice for our sins to bring us back to God. That is what it meant for Jesus to give himself. And when we live a little bit like him, God loves it. When we run that race, we get to feel his pleasure. To know that he absolutely loves us. But continuing with that race analogy just for a moment, God is not simply on the sidelines clapping, saying, oh, very well done. He doesn't just love the cheerful giver, he blesses them. Just look at verse 8 with me. This is a a verse to memorise, to take to your heart, to delight in. Look at all the alls and every. All and every in the Greek is the same word. Okay, God is able, and the implication is willing, for those who are cheerful givers. God is able and willing to bless you abundantly. So that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. The all every word is there five times in one verse. Four times about God, once about us. And the word abound or abundantly is there twice. Once about God, once about us. Do you see how it works? God will abound in giving you all blessing in every way, at every time, so that you will always have everything that you need. Not everything you want. Not a bright blue Porsche with with cream covers. Just, Andy's going, what? Just waking him up, you know. It's been been a long journey yesterday. He won't give us everything we want, but he will give us everything we need at every situation. Why? So that you can abundantly fulfil every good work. And it's clear, given verse 9 is about uh, gifts to the poor Christians and righteousness, that what he has in view here, the good work in particular, he has in view in this passage is uh, the fundraising for the, the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. But I do think the principle here extends to every good work, because that's what he says. Every time we do a good thing, the good works God has prepared in advance for us to walk in Ephesians 2.10. God will pour out his abundant blessings on us again and again and again because he loves us, because we're cheerfully serving him. We fear missing out, don't we? We look at what's on this side of the scales. If I give generously, it means not that phone, not that car, not that house, not that pair of shoes, whatever the thing is on this side of the scales for you. We fear losing those things. We fear losing the earthly things that that bind our hearts in chains to slavery to sin. Not necessarily bad things in themselves, but the things that bind us to this world. We fear missing out, so we stop short of generosity. But who's really missing out here, brothers and sisters? Who's missing out? God is stood there saying, I love it when you are generous. I'm a bit Kevin Keegan there, don't I? I love it when you are generous. When you do good, and I want to pour out every blessing on you that I can, so that you will do more good. So that you will pour out your blessing, you'll pour out your generosity again. And I will pour out my blessings again. And you will delight me more and more. And I will bless you more and more. And we will bless more people in every single way. But you don't want my blessings. You want a handbag. We cannot outgive God. 
But there are blessings that we can miss out on because we keep for ourselves what God has given us to give away. May God lead us to repentance. This is not some grubby financial transaction with God, a tenor for his 20. God doesn't rule out financial blessing. He says, I will abound in every way necessary for you to abound in every good work. So it may well mean that God blesses us financially. As we're generous, he'll go, here, have some more so that you can do more good. But it's wider than that, so much wider than that, isn't it? I'll bless you in every way. He doesn't promise you money. He promises you everything. And he gives everything, verse 10, increasing your seed so that in turn, through your generosity, he will enlarge your harvest of righteousness in every way. See, principle one, principle two, get right together. God loves it when you're generous and he will give you a harvest of righteousness and he will supply everything you need to grow that harvest of righteousness time after time after time until you are just like Jesus. I asked at the beginning how it is that our giving generously grows in righteousness. Simple. God does it. God does it. As we are generous with everything we have and are, God entrusts us with more. So that we'll be more generous, so that there's more good being done, so that we're growing in righteousness, becoming more like Christ in everything and every way, it's, it's his character being worked out in our character. Do you see? God is generous, so we can be generous. We become like Christ. And that ensures that it works. You will be enriched, verse 11, look down with me. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. What a magnificent vision for the church. God loves generosity of character. It shows that we've understood the grace of the gospel. We've been given everything in the heavenly realms. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have no need for the things of this world. We want to become like Christ. That's what we're heading towards anyway. We're going to be like Jesus on the final day. So let's be more like Jesus now. That's what he wants. God loves it when we're like that. And he is willing to pour out every future blessing on us. Surely that's enough of motivation. Surely on this side of the scales, it's weighed down with blessing. It's weighed down with benefits. But Paul wants to end this passage with three more things that we can rejoice in because he wants us to see there is blessing after blessing after blessing. Three, a third point, three acts of, acts of generosity that produce three things. Verse 11b to the end of the chapter. Let's look at these things together. Because if you're not totally persuaded that by, by the goodness of, of being righteous in Christ, then let me give you three more things. The first thing, acts of generosity, meet the needs of God's people. That's verse 12a. I guess this is an obvious one, isn't it? We could miss this as we're passing through. But this is the thing that Paul is doing, isn't it? He's, he's travelling around the whole Mediterranean world, gathering up funds to bless poor Christians in Jerusalem. Remember 8 verse uh, 13? Our desire is not that others may be relieved, or you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. He says, fairness, proper care for the church in Jerusalem in a time of need. That's what he's collecting for. It can seem mundane, can't it? The simple, if I give this money here, it'll put food on the table for that person over there. It seems so mundane, but isn't that a good reason enough to give? That thing by itself, 
yes, I lose out a little bit over here, but that person who's dying is blessed abundantly. Isn't that the sole reason why many people give to charity? Isn't that a sufficient motivation for Christians? See it from the perspective of the Corinthians here for a moment. Yes, giving generously might impact their ability to go on holiday or replace the chariot, or might mean they have to be more circumspect in their Ricardo shopping. But the gift that they're giving puts food and shelter and clothing in the lives of desperately poor Christians over here. It's gain, isn't it? I I meant to bring a a photo in today to show you. Some of you know I was in Uganda uh, back at the beginning of January uh, at a conference there. And one of the highlights for me was being able to spend a a week with a guy called Gabriel Ajidra. Gabriel's been my pen pal for about five years. Uh, He's doing ministry in the bush in Uganda. It was great to finally meet him and to share in ministry together. And I got an email from my friend Chris out there on Friday saying that Gabriel had died. Uh, he got cancer and they couldn't save him. Didn't have the money, didn't have the, the resources to, to give him chemo. And he passed away, leaving a wife and eight children with nothing. The saints in Jerusalem. And I'm trying to work out what we can do. I sent my friend Chris an email and said, look, what's the most appropriate thing we can do? What, what should I be aiming to do for him, for his family? Here's a man who spent himself for the gospel, loved Jesus, preached the gospel to desperately poor people in the bush at the cost of everything. And now he's left a wife and eight children without means. What can we do? What can I take off my table that's going to put food on, on his family's table? What could we do? Yes, there's a cost. There's a real cost, but the cost is not great compared to what you can do for God with that. And knowing you've done that good, surely that's enough motivation. Verse 12, supplying the needs of the Lord's people. Second additional thing, the the acts of giving that we do strengthens the bonds between believers. Verse 14a. In their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. What a lovely image that is. A fellowship between churches, a financial generosity from Corinth that stirs up gratitude and love and prayers from the people in Jerusalem who then pray for and love a congregation they've never met. That interdependence between congregations strengthens the whole church, doesn't it? As those acts of generosity and love go round the whole world. As churches depend on each other for money, but also for prayer and for support in other ways. Their hearts are for one another. They bear one another's burdens. This is not disinterested self-obsession. What do I get out of it? This is genuine compassion that leads to action for the good of others. But that act of goodness, that act of doing good for them, has drawn goodness out of the church there. Because now they're wanting to pray and wanting to love and wanting to serve. That one act of goodwill brings more acts of goodwill. Draws goodness, gospel-heartedness out of other Christians. I can tell you from our own experience, there have been seasons in our training for ministry where we've needed other people to be generous to us. And it strengthens love between us and thankfulness to God. Who doesn't want that? But there's a final idea. It runs right through the the last third of our chapter. Let me just uh, flick out some verses to us as we look. And we see uh, that acts of generosity resound in praise to God. Let's skim through. Verse 11, uh, second half. 
And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Everyone everywhere will hear about your generosity, your deeds, and they will praise God for them. Indeed, verse 12, it will lead to an overflowing expression of thanks to God. Why will Christians look at the Corinthians and praise God? Because of principle two. Because God has poured out his blessings on them, and they have channeled those blessings to others. They've been generous, they've been Christ-like, they've grasped the gospel, and it's transformed them. It's that transformation that's there in verse 13. The obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel. We proclaim that we believe in Jesus. We love Christ. Let's show it in the way that we live. You're living as generous Christians. That shows that you've grasped the gospel and you're living in light of the gospel. Praise God. That's what he wants for the whole church. Be praising God. And so ultimately it is with each of the past two weeks. The motivation is the same, isn't it? Paul wants the world to see how great God is. How great his, how his gospel liberates generosity for the good of other people. Even people quite unlike us. People across national and, and race and at class boundaries. So that God is glorified. So people go, wow, God is amazing. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God does everything for his glory. God blesses us for his glory, that we might bless others for his glory. Do we want to live in line with how God is purposing the whole world? Or are we going to work at odds to him? Let me sum up. Is Paul teaching the prosperity gospel? No, absolutely not. He's teaching something far, far more radical and tangible because it is truth. He's offering an abundance of righteousness to the church overflowing with good to one another. The bigger our generosity, the the more God delights in it, the more he pours out his good to others. We asked at the beginning, what do we gain from generous giving? But surely the question is now reversed, isn't it? Compared to all that we gain by giving, what do we gain by keeping? What do we gain from selfishness? How much do we impoverish ourselves when we hoard to our own harm? Do you want to feel the delight of God? To know that he absolutely loves the way you're living right now? Then give generously of everything you are. Not just your money. Do you want to grow in godliness, to flourish in righteousness? Then give generously. And watch God pour blessing upon blessing on you and through you to the good of others. Do you want to see suffering Christians relieved and the world to see the power of the gospel in uniting people from every tribe and tongue and nation? Then give generously. Do you want to see the bonds of mutual love and affection and fellowship flourish across congregations near and far, full of financial and prayerful and rejoicing interdependence? Then give generously. Do you want to see the name of God magnified among the nations? Do you want to see the beauty of Christ manifested before the watching eyes of the world so that unbelievers pour in through the doors of church and say, I want whatever the Spirit of God is doing in this place. Do you want to see whole nations lifting their hands in praise of the one who gives every good gift? Then give generously. Brothers and sisters, there is so much to be gained that the only question for us is whether we care about those things. 
Do we care about the things that God promises to give? Do we value them as highly as God does? These things are manifestly, deeply precious in his eyes. They are of the utmost importance to him, are they to us? The test here is whether we love what God loves and whether we will put his money where his mouth is. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us for the ways in which we crave the things of this world. Trinkets and baubles that will perish in fire. Give us uh, the heart that you have. Love for one another. Love for our brothers and sisters around the world. Love for the lost. Love that burns in us. That we long to give. That we long to give everything we are for your sake. And would you pour out your blessings again and again on us. Would we uh, become the righteous people that you are making us. Would you... uh, would, would we be such a church that the world looks on and is dumbfounded and wants to know where we get this love for others from? Would you transform us that we might transform our world for the sake of your name? Amen.